15 this morning as we're continuing our series here. We've been in John 15 now, and if you'll remember last week, uh, we looked at the uh, fruit that we have in Christ Jesus. We, we talked about fruit bearing, and uh, we talked about the true vine, and how Wednesday night we, we completed the series, or the sermon, so to speak, on the results of fruitfulness and how we can know that we're bearing fruit. And so we looked at that and studied that together Wednesday night. And now we are in John chapter 15 and looking at verses 11 through 14. We're going to look here this morning at some key things. And and I, I believe that we'll probably just get the first point in this morning and then we'll look at the other two tonight. Pray for me. I leave out after the evening service and I fly down to uh, Jacksonville. I get to preach at uh, uh, Liberty Baptist tomorrow night. I'm excited about that. Uh, but I'm also very nervous about that because uh, I, get to, I'm, I get the opportunity to preach, but it's in front of my favorite preachers in all the world. And uh, so I don't, uh, I don't feel worthy uh, to be able to preach. I, I'd go just to hear them. Amen? Uh, but I do feel honored that I'm given the opportunity. So be praying for safety and travel. Let's remember all those that are traveling. Uh, it's good to have Hogan home and Riley home, and they're leaving out either today or tomorrow or something. They'll be traveling. And uh, then Brother Lance and Miss Bonnie, they're traveling today, uh, coming back from Florida. So let's just, lots of people traveling this weekend. Amen. Uh, who knew President's Day weekend was a big travel day for our church? You know, we really just want to honor our presidents. Amen. And, uh, but anyway, uh, if you're glad you came to church this morning, say amen. Amen. I need some help this morning because I'm, I'm awfully tired. Anybody tired? Anybody tired? Hey, amen. I got my, my media director back there with the amen sign. We need to get that amen button that you can just kind of hit. And uh, oh, man. Oh, man. I'm getting distracted now. All right. John 15. Let's jump into it. Let's stand in honor of the reading of the Word of God. John chapter 15, starting in verse number 11. These things have I spoken unto you that my joy might remain in you and that your joy might be full. This is my commandment, that ye love one another as I have loved you. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Ye are my friends, if ye do whatsoever I command you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning and we're just so thankful for the opportunity to gather together as believers and as a church family, as brothers and sisters in Christ and to study your word. We're grateful for the opportunities that we have to, uh, to, to search out the scriptures diligently. Lord, I pray that you would help us to stay focused on you this morning. Lord, I know that there are some that are tired. I know that there are some that are weary, some that are uh, going through things. And I just pray that today will be an encouragement to abide in your joy. Lord, I pray that you would help us to realize that we can go through this life joyously. and That that is your desire for us. Lord, we love you. We thank you so much for loving us. Manifest your word in a real way to us this morning. Help us to understand it as we study it together. Speak to our hearts and lives. In Christ's name, amen and amen. You may be seated. Now, over the course of this morning and this evening, or maybe we'll finish it all this morning, Lord only knows. But essentially what we're looking at is this love of a friend that Christ has for us and that we should exemplify 
in this world. The love that is known of Christians distinguishes us as friends of Christ and not as servants. Uh, If you'll remember some of the background that we've covered on this, they have completed dinner, they have left the area where they observed the Lord's table together, where Jesus introduced them to the new ordinance that they didn't even understand at that time that's what was happening. And now they're on their way to the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus in chapter 16 or 17 will start praying to the Father for His followers. And I want us to understand that these are the commandments that Jesus has left His followers in the very last hours of His life. The very last hours of His life. He's already taught His followers of their new commandment that we'll look into a little bit later on. This commandment to love. He will now detail how that command of love is to operate in this world. In verse number 11 though, where we started, we see the first of three times that Christ uses the phrase, these things have I spoken. These things have I spoken. He's getting ready to tell His followers the reason why He just educated them on bearing fruit. That's what the first ten verses are all about. It's about bearing fruit. It's about the abiding in the vine, Jesus Christ, so that we can be fruitful. And then verse 11, we see the first of three. The other two, we'll get to, but the first one we see uh, here in verse 11. You also see in chapter 16 and verse number 1. Let's look at it. These things have I spoken unto you, that ye should not be offended. So everything that he said from verse 12 down to verse 27 of 15, he has spoken to the followers so that they wouldn't be offended. We'll look at that a little later. And then in chapter 16 and verse 33, the last verse of chapter 16, These things have I spoken unto you, that in me ye might have peace. So Jesus is telling His followers that He has given these commands, He's given this way of life for us to live so that we, according to verse 11, might have joy, may not be offended, and might have peace. Those are the three things that the majority of people are searching for in this life. Joy, peace, and to live a life unoffended. We'll talk about that when we get to that verse uh, verse 1 in chapter 16. But this morning I want us to look, off, look up, starting with the first point, the joy of Christ. The joy of Christ. Let's read verse 11 one more time. These things have I spoken unto you, that my joy might remain in you, and that your joy might be full. The joy of Christ is one of the greatest benefits of the Christian life. His teaching of fruit bearing when applied is going to give us as followers a life that is fulfilled. You ever wonder why you see someone who claims to be a Christian yet they look like they're unfulfilled in life? They, they, they claim the name of Christ. They claim that they've placed their faith and trust in Christ and Christ alone for their salvation. And quite possibly they have, but yet they kind of wander through life unfulfilled. They jump from job to job, career to career. Some of them jump from spouse to spouse. Some of them jump from one addiction to the next because they cannot find joy. They're unfulfilled. When Jesus gives the answer, 
here in verse number 11 that because of fruit bearing, because of being able to reap what we sow, the fruit that we can, that we can bear for Christ, we can have real joy. Here the Savior is about to be crucified. He's about to be beaten. He's about to be crucified. He's about to be buried. And then He's going to rise again. And then He's going to ascend to the Father. This would be a very trying time for His followers. This is going to be a very trying time. Little do they know. Amen? They have no idea what's coming around the corner. They're still following Him faithfully and saying, Oh, but Lord, I will die before I would leave you. And then what happens? All have forsaken Him. So this is going to be a trying time to be a follower of Christ here in John chapter 15 in these next few chapters. His followers are going to experience loss. The loss of the person that they believed was the Son of God. And now all of a sudden the Son of God has died. That's got to be very confusing for a follower of Jesus Christ who's placed their faith and trust in Him. And then all of a sudden Jesus has been crucified. How how does that work? How how do you kill God? Little do they know. You see, hindsight's 20-20. We look at the Word of God and we read chapter 14, 15, 16, and 17 in anticipation and preparation for the crucifixion that is the path to our salvation. And we read it and you can't help but get a little excited. You mourn His death, but we celebrate His life because we know that He's risen. But the disciples here in these moments, they're just business as usual. They're following the Savior. They have no idea that this will be the last time that He teaches them in His earthly ministry. They have no idea. They're about to experience some real loss. And with loss, automatically comes loneliness. With loss comes loneliness. Most of you know that experience. Most of you know what it's like to lose someone that you care about and that you love. And even though you could be surrounded by support, you're still utterly and bitterly alone. The disciples are about to face this. And what does He do? These things have I spoken unto you that my joy might remain. This is going to be a trying time for the disciples. Yet Christ promised that in the midst of loss, in the midst of doubt, in the midst of loneliness, He promised that His joy would remain. But the joy of his followers would not only, his joy would not only remain, but their joy would be full. What does that mean? That their joy would be full? Well, we'll get to that in just a moment. Joy, Noah Webster said, is a delight of the mind. It's a delight of the mind from the consideration of the present or assured approaching good. That's what joy is. It's a delight of the mind. It's what brings you... Hey, have you ever had something that... Maybe it was something you really looked forward to. Maybe it was some item that you wanted. Amen? I don't don't know what it... Fill in the blank. Every person in here is different. Some of you like vehicles. Some of you like, I don't know, submarines. I I don't know what you like. Amen? 
Some of you, you know, Air Force, maybe it's something with the Air Force, I don't know. But some, all of us have something that we've ordered it, or we've pre-ordered it, or we've bought it online. And what do we do? We're checking that tracking, amen? And then we're at work, and the tracking notices up, and it says it's been delivered today. And then all of a sudden, nothing else matters in life but getting home after 5 o'clock or 6 o'clock, or for some of you, 12 o'clock in the morning, amen? Uh, uh, getting home and getting to that thing. That anticipation of a possession that you're about to acquire. What is that? That's joy. That's what joy is. It's that delight of mind. All of a sudden, everything is great. All of a sudden, the day can't go by quick enough till you could get home. Some of you, like our teenagers, it's your pillow at night. Amen? That's what you really look forward to. I love my pillow. What's the favorite thing? I still don't remember the whole conversation, but we asked what was the favorite thing. And Mary, automat- what do you look forward to every- when you wake up? What do you look forward to when you wake up in the morning? Going back to bed. That was Mary's thing. Amen? That brings her joy. The, the, the possession of the assured approaching good. I get to go lay my head back down. Amen? If I can make it through these next 10 to 12 hours and survive just to go to sleep. Amen? That's joy. I want us to turn to Nehemiah chapter 8 this morning, and I want us to look at an example of some people that didn't have joy and why they were encouraged to live in joy. And then we're going to get back to John 16 and look at two interesting things. Nehemiah chapter 8. We're going to be down in verse 10 to start off. Nehemiah chapter 8, verse number 10. If you're with me, say amen. 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 All right. You're with me. I'll tell you why I'm distracted this morning. Because I'm getting ready to fly down to Jacksonville. And my wife, who notoriously has a baby early, is due in three weeks. And the only thing I'm thinking is I'm going to land in Jacksonville at midnight and I'm going to get a call saying, come back, amen, and then I'm going to be stuck in the airport for 20 hours, (laughs) all right? And uh, our babies don't take that long. As soon as she says I'm ready, within like half an hour, that baby's here, amen? So that I'm a little distracted because of that. So you pray for me because the joy of having a child is... Also, burdensome right now because I'm going to be seven hours away. <laughs> All right, So pray for me. I'm trying to stay focused. I need your help this morning. Nehemiah chapter 8. Look at verse 10 with me. Then he said unto them, Go your way, eat the fat, and drink the sweet, and send portions unto them for whom nothing is prepared. For this day is holy unto our Lord. Neither be ye sorry. For the joy of the Lord is your strength. Now, you can look up that phrase, the joy of the Lord is your strength, and you will find it many, many times in your King James Bible because of the truth behind it. But what's happening here in Nehemiah? Go back to verse number 3. The people of Israel have returned from Babylonian exile. Ezra and Nehemiah are contemporaries. It just means that they existed at the same time. They were living at the same time. Ezra 
was given permission around 477 B.C. to go and to rebuild the temple. I believe it was, uh, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, it was Darius who gave him the opportunity to go and to rebuild the temple. And so that's what you have in the book of Ezra, the rebuilding of the temple. Nehemiah was the wine bearer or the cup bearer for Artaxerxes. And one year after Darius gave Ezra permission to go and to rebuild the temple, Nehemiah was given permission to go and to rebuild the wall. Now that's important. There's a lesson there. There's no reason to try to fortify the city if God is not in the city. Amen? God first, and then allow, and then God provides opportunity for it to be... There's a, there's a spiritual lesson there. Amen? That's what Ezra and Nehemiah are all about. In Nehemiah chapter 8, we have the people of Israel returning from the Babylonian exile. And in chapter 7, you have a register, so to speak, of the names of the different families that have returned. And then look at, uh, look, well, look back at chapter 7 and verse 67, or no, verse 66. Nehemiah chapter 7, verse 66. The whole congregation together. The whole congregation together was 42,303 score. Beside their manservants and their maidservants, of whom there were 7,337. And they had 245 singing men and singing women. They had a choir, amen? They had a big choir. Now, back to Ezra or Nehemiah chapter 8. The people of Israel, a large portion of people, have returned from Babylonian exile and are now in the place where Ezra is about to read the book of the law. And we're going to see the result. Look at verse 3. And he read therein before the street that was before the water gate from the morning until midday. Now he, he read that Bible for a long time. Amen. That's what he read, the book of the law. To the men and the women, and those that could understand, and the ears of all the people were attentive unto the book of the law. Now remember, these people had been in exile, not allowed to be in their land. And for the most part, what we're going to see is that they did not know the law, and they did not keep the law. They did not study the law until they were given opportunity to go back to the land. They were attentive unto the book of the law. They were hungry to hear what God had to say to them. Verse 4, And Ezra the scribe stood upon a pulpit of wood, which they had made for the purpose, and beside him stood Mattathiah and Shema and Ananiah, and Urijah, and Hilkiah, and Messiah on the right hand, and on the left hand, uh, Padiah, and Mishael, and Malchiah, and Hashem, and Hashbadana, and Zechariah, and Meshalam. Any of you people wanting to have children, there is a plethora of names here to choose from if you would like to have some biblical names. Amen? Ezra... Verse 5, opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. Remember, he's on the pulpit of wood. And when he opened it, 
all the people stood up. Now that's one of the reasons, biblically, why we stand in honor of the reading of the Word of God. It's right here from Nehemiah chapter 8. Now notice, Ezra, verse 6, blessed the Lord, the great God. And all the people answered, Amen, Amen. That means truth, truth. So what they were saying was truth. They agreed with what Ezra was reading. That's the reason why we say Amen in service. That's why I encourage you, especially you men, to say amen every once in a while because it shows, especially when we have visitors here or maybe our young people, they see that mom and dad agree with what's being taught. Amen? And so we see that precedence kind of here, in a way. Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered amen, amen, with lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads, and worshipped the Lord with their faces where? To the ground. Now remember, biblical worship is not this. Amen? Biblical worship, when you see it, what happened to Moses when he stood before God and he said, take thy shoes from off thy feet for the place they're standing is holy ground. What did he do? He fell on his face and he worshipped. What is worship in the Scripture? It's never this number. Amen? Worship is always this. And the people here, notice, Ezra blessed the people. How many are there? All the people. All of them that came. Remember chapter 7 verse 66, the 42,360? That's how many people were there, plus the maidservants and men's servants, plus everybody else that had been given opportunity to go back to the land. And what did they do? They worshipped the Lord God with their faces to the ground. Verse 8. So they read in the book, in the law, in the law of God distinctly, and gave the sense and caused them to understand the reading. Now this is a great passage of Scripture because it's convicting to to me as a young pastor because this is exactly what a preacher does. Read the book of the law to give a distinct and clear understanding so that the people that can understand and hear will learn from the Word of God. That's why if we ever get to the place where I feel like we've we've staled, as if I'm I'm reading, I'm preaching, I'm trying to teach, and we're just kind of here out of the motions, that's when I know that my job here is done. You need someone else. That's how I know that. When that happens. Why? Because you've learned everything that you're going to learn from me. Because there's nothing wrong with this book. And that's what happens sometimes in ministry. Sometimes that happens. And it's not a bad thing. A lot of times it paves the way for God to do something greater. Amen? When we get out of the way. But I want us to understand that. As long as they were reading the book, and they were giving sense to the book of the law, to the people of Israel, there was understanding in the reading. Now verse number 9. Nehemiah, which is the... Tershatha, and Ezra the priest, the scribe, and the Levites that taught the people said unto all the people, This day is holy unto the Lord your God. Mourn not, nor weep. Why would he say that? Well, the latter part of the verse. All the people wept when they heard the words of the law. Now here's where we're at. Verses 3 through 6, Ezra reads the law and the people of God 
worship the God of their fathers. And that was a great response. Now Ezra is continuing to give the understanding. The law is being taught. And it has caused the Israelites to weep. It's caused them to weep. Why? Because they recognized their error. They recognized that their fathers had turned to idolatry and they were not living the way that God intended for His people to live. And the result of the clear understanding of Scripture that was taught was weeping. Because the people realized they had failed God. Now notice verse 10. Then He said unto them, this is Ezra, Go your way, eat the fat, and drink the sweet, and send portions unto them for whom nothing is prepared. For this day is holy unto our Lord. Neither be ye sorry, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. I want us to understand something. The reason why they were upset, the reason they were weeping, is because their focus was on their failures. Their focus was on... This day was supposed to be a day of rejoicing. The people had returned. The wall was being built. The temple was being built. The house of God was rebuilt. They had the place to worship. And now, all of a sudden, they get to hear the law of God taught to them as it was intended. And what was the result? Weeping. Because they were focused on their failures. They had no joy. You want to know what what I notice in this Christian life? You want to know what I notice here in our church sometimes? What I notice in the community? People like to focus on their own failures. I can't tell you how many times in 11 years of ministry I've been told, Well, Pastor, you don't know who I was. To which my immediate response is, yeah, but God did and He loves you anyway. That's kind of, that's the mentality. I don't know who you were. Hey, let me help you out with one more. I don't care who you were. Because this Christian life isn't about your failures. It's about His goodness. That's what it's about. I can't serve because I've done X, Y, and Z and people will look down on me. You've allowed this world and your own selfish pride to rob you of the joy that God wants you to have. God is dwelling within your heart. The God that created you is found within you. And you're allowing yourself to be robbed of joy. What did Ezra say? Neither be ye sorry, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. That delight in that promised possession of good that you're coming into. What is the promised possession that we are going to have? Ezra encouraged them to have joy in the Lord. One of the things they were going to get to do was observe the feast. Look, Same chapter, Nehemiah chapter 8. Look at verse 16. So the people went forth and brought them and made themselves booths everyone upon the roof of his house and in their courts and in the courts of the house of God and in the street of the water gate and the street of the gate of Ephraim. 
And all the congregation of them that were come again out of the captivity made booths and sat under the booths. For since the day of who? Jeshua. Who is that? Joshua. Since the day of Jeshua, the son of Nun, until that day. How long did they live in the land of God before they went into Babylonian exile? Many hundreds of years. But from the day of Joshua until this day, they had not kept this specific feast that they were supposed to keep. Not in the way that God had intended. That's what verse 17 teaches. Since the days of Jeshua, the son of Nun, unto that day, had not the children of Israel done so. And there was very great gladness. Because now, instead of focusing on their failures, they're focusing on what they get to do because God has brought them back to the land of promise. Their focus isn't on what they did or what their forefathers did. Their focus wasn't on their idolatry. Their focus was on how they were supposed to live for God. And when they get to do that, there was gladness. And that brings about joy. Turn with me now to 1 Peter chapter 1. First Peter chapter 1. We have the example in Nehemiah. The example of the people. And how, how applicable to our lives. How many of us wake up day in and day out thinking that we can accomplish zero for God because of who we were? Think about it. How many of us do that? I would have to say that if we were all honest, all of us do that. All of us. See, you think it's you. You all think that you are the worst person in this building. And the person sitting next to you, and the person sitting in front of you, and the person sitting behind you think the exact same thing, that they are the worst person in this building. When the reality is, we're all sinners. All of us. Well, I'm sure no one's done this. Well, it doesn't matter. They've done this. And to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is what? Sin. We've fallen into this trap of believing that certain sins are worse than others. But did you know that there are sins in the book of Proverbs that the Bible says God hates? And you know what they are? Sins of everyday life. Lying tongue. God hates that. Well, I was an alcoholic. Okay. What are you now? I'm a sinner saved by grace. That's what matters. Don't let the mistakes of your past rob you of the joy of that future possession that God has intended for you. And let me tell you something. That future possession is not heaven. The future possession, that joy. Well, I don't want to get ahead of myself. I I almost gave away my ending. I almost gave it away. Amen. I told you I'm distracted. Look at 1 Peter. Where do we obtain our joy? For the children of Israel, it was to be able to hear the words of God and to apply them to their lives and to work out in their everyday living the way that they were supposed to live. 1 Peter 1, verse 3. 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to His abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now, we already have one part of what is needed for joy. And it's the main part. Hope. You see, joy cannot be had where hope is absent. Joy cannot be had where hope is absent. Remember we talked about that bitter and utter loneliness that you feel at the loss of a loved one? But in reality, there's hope that we'll see them again. And so when you go through life and you have that day, and I promise you, I've had these days where you go through life and you feel hopeless... Because whoever's not there, then all of a sudden you've been robbed of your joy because you're focusing on the absence of them now instead of where they are currently residing. And where are they currently residing? In our hope, Jesus Christ. Notice, He's begotten us again unto a lively hope. Look at verse 6. Wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations, that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ." Whom having not seen, ye love. In whom though now ye see Him not, yet believing. Then we have it. Ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. Why is it called the joy unspeakable? Because no matter how you try, you can't explain it. You can't. Oh, you, you, just, you just lost your spouse. How can you have joy? I, I just know I'm going to see him again. How do you know that? Because the Scripture tells me that Jesus died for me and my spouse placed their faith and trust in Christ a long time ago and I placed my faith and trust in Christ a long time ago. My mom and dad did the same thing. I've done the same thing. I have hope and so I have joy. That doesn't make sense. It's joy unspeakable and full of glory. I can't always explain it. But I know what God has given me. Notice this joy. We skip verses 4 and 5. Look back at them. We have a lively hope at the end of verse 3 by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. A lively hope to what? To an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Remember, what did Webster say joy was? The delight of the mind from the consideration of the present or assured possession of a good. What is our assured possession? We have an inheritance that's incorruptible and undefiled. 
and that fadeth not away. The Bible calls that inheritance by another name. It's called the adoption. In Ephesians chapter 1, we know that passage. It's the adoption. You see, a lot of times when we, ta- when, when we, when we talk about heaven, and we think of heaven, people mention that, that inheritance as if it's the streets of gold. They talk of the inheritance as if it's that mansion that He has prepared for us. They talk of the inheritance as if it's the walls of jasper, the gates of pearl. That's not the inheritance. That's not the inheritance. The inheritance is the presence of Christ for eternity. That's what we have to look forward to. That's why we have joy unspeakable. We go through this life and we go through trials and we go through temptations. And what does Peter say in this epistle? He says, the trial of your faith being much more precious than of gold that perisheth. Why? Because your faith cannot perish. God cannot forsake His own. Back to John 15 and we're done. Well, almost done. John 15. These things have I spoken unto you. Now this is what I want us to focus on. That my joy. If joy is that delight of mind for that purchased possession or that promised possession, that assured possession that you're going to come into contact with one day. If if that's what it is, then the joy that is to remain for the follower is the joy of Christ. Notice, these things have I spoken unto you that my joy might remain. But then, notice the last part. And that your joy might be full. That my joy will remain. Why? Because you cannot lose the joy of Christ. Why? Because it only comes from the hope of Christ. That inheritance that's incorruptible, undefiled. The joy of Christ. So when your joy is lacking, you can still have that lively hope, the joy of Christ in your life. But notice, He spoke these things about bearing fruit, about abiding in Him, dwelling, living in Christ Jesus, being cleansed by the Word of God. He spoke these things so not only that His joy would remain, but that our joy might be full. Psalm 16. Psalm 16, 11. This was the last verse we looked at in teen class. And it wasn't originally a part of the sermon. And we weren't going to look at it in teen class either. But we just thought, well, let's just look at it. How do we have our joy filled? God promised us. Jesus Christ promised us that His joy would remain. His joy can only remain because we have hope in Him. That's the only way His joy can remain. Then how is our joy made full? Because that's what He said. 
These things have I spoken unto you that my joy might remain in you and that your joy might be full. How do we have full joy? Psalm 16 verse 11. Thou wilt show me the path of life. In thy presence is what? The fullness of joy. At thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore. In your presence. Now Psalm 16 is very significant. Why? Verse 10. Thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one. Those are capital. Who's that referencing? Jesus Christ. It's, his, it's a prophetic reference in the Psalms about Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. And in His death and in His burial, Jesus goes to hell. That's what the Bible teaches. Thou wilt not suffer thine holy one to see corruption. That's talking about the resurrection beforehand. Now he goes, now, well, let's not run that rabbit. We've run that before. We'll let it go. I want to stay focused. So here we have the preservation cry in verse 1. The trust that is supposed to be had by the psalmist David is in the Lord and in the Lord only. The prophetic reference to the death, burial, and resurrection in verse 10, to the Holy One. And then the promise of verse 11. Thou wilt show me the path of life. What's the path of life? Jesus Christ. He's the path of life. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. John 14. Thou wilt show me the path of life in thy presence is fullness of joy. What did Jesus tell His disciples? These things have I spoken unto you that my joy might remain in you and that your joy might be full. How do we experience? I don't like that word. How do we obtain the joy of Christ? Here's the answer. You already have it. His joy. That promised life. If you are His, it's already yours. Well, then why do I struggle? Why do I not feel joy? Because we've left the presence of God. We've left the presence of God. That's what Psalm 16 says. Thou wilt show me the path of life in thy presence is the fullness of joy. Many of you know the name Anne Still. She encountered one trial after another in her life, one disappointment after another. Her mother died when she was three, and when she was 19, she suffered from a severe hip injury that left her an invalid. Eventually, she fell in love, was engaged to be married, but the day before the wedding, her fiancé drowned. The day before her wedding. Mother died at three. Invalid from 19. And now the love of her life has died. And still penned this following hymn. Father, what heir of earthly bliss thine sovereign will denies. Accepted. At thy throne of grace, 
let this petition rise. Give me a calm, a thankful heart from every murmur free. The blessings of thy grace impart and make me live to thee. How can someone pen words like that after all that they've been through? Because the joy of the Lord found in the presence of God was her strength. Every head bowed, every eye closed.